So this summer, we've been engaged in a study of the names of God. And, and I know for some people that seems strange and confusing because we are used to God having only one name. But what we discover throughout Scripture, particularly throughout the Old Testament, is that there are these moments when God decides to drop another name. They may be names that he declares himself, or they may be names he allows somebody else to designate for him. But throughout the Old Testament in particular, we have these moments where God gives us another name. And it's, it's kind of like his way of painting a masterpiece, one drop of paint at a time. And thus far through this summer, we've, we've learned that God's personal name is Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the name he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It's a simple four-letter name that means I am. And from there, Abraham called God Yahweh Yireh. After God provided a substitutionary sacrifice in place of Isaac. And in that moment, Abraham worshiped the one he called Yahweh provides. Then God identified himself as Yahweh Rapha when he healed the bitter water at Marah in order to make it drinkable for his children. And he then told them that he is Yahweh who heals. And Moses then called God Yahweh Nissi after Israel's divinely orchestrated victory over the Amalekites. And that moment of triumph, in that moment of triumph, all Moses could say was Yahweh is our banner, which means Yahweh is the one for whom we fight and from whom our victories come. And then finally, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, God again identified himself, this time as Yahweh M. Kadesh. He did so on a couple of occasions as he communicated his covenant requirements via Moses to Israel. And as he gave Israel his expectations for them to be different from the rest of the world, he said, I am Yahweh who sanctifies, or Yahweh who is holy. And who makes you holy. And that brings us to a new name today. And that name appeared in Judges chapter 6 in the reading that we just uh, went through. After encountering the angel of the Lord, we read in Judges chapter 6, verse 24, that Gideon built an altar. And he called it Yahweh Shalom, or the Lord is Peace. That's the name we're going to talk about today. Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Now it's very fascinating because here we are in the midst of Judges chapter 6 and it's an interesting occasion for that name to get dropped, for a name about peace to get dropped in the midst of Judges chapter 6. Because do you know what's happening here? I like the way one preacher put it. One preacher said that at this moment, in the history of Israel, Israel was not finding the promised land to be a peaceful land. You see, one of God's promises to Israel at the start of the Exodus 
was that he was going to bring them to the land of Canaan, to that land he had promised them. And upon arrival, they were eventually going to experience peace and rest. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, where you have the Lord communicating uh, through Moses that the land over the Jordan was not only their God-given inheritance, but also a place of rest from all their enemies, a place where they would live in safety. And then Joshua reiterated this promise about the promised land. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 13, Joshua reminded the people of the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest. But that has been so elusive for the Israelites at this point. See, at this time in their history, peace and rest and safety hadn't come. Look at the events that lead up to Gideon's encounter with the angel of the Lord. We didn't read this one, this part yet. Go back to the first verse of Judges chapter 6, and let's read the first six verses. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I want you to consider with me this morning what hindered Israel's peace. Because I believe the things that hinder our peace today were the very same things that hindered their peace back then. And the first thing I notice as far as what hindered their peace was the absence of fairness in life. You may not know this yet, but life isn't fair. If you don't know that yet, you haven't been living. Life isn't fair. And that's exactly how the Israelites feel at this point. Look again at what Judges chapter 6 and verse 6 says. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Israel was living in the land of Canaan. They were minding their own business at this point. They weren't oppressing anyone. They weren't attacking anyone. They weren't a threat to anyone at this point. They were, weren't provoking anyone at this point. They were simply trying to survive off the land. Then all of a sudden, the Midianites, the, and these, the Midianites are descendants of Abraham via his second wife, Keturah. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 25. And the Midianites are the family from which Moses' wife came. Moses' wife was a daughter of a Midianite priest, and it was to the Midianites that Moses fled when he left Egypt. This is a people that the, the Israelites should have some sort of connection with, but they're invading Israelite territory. They're stealing the Israelites' crops and their livestock, and they're trampling their land. 
And these invasions were so frequent and so brutal that the Israelites were forced to abandon their homes and find shelter in caves just to survive. But their survival was a struggle because this human pestilence, did you notice, did you notice that the Midianite invasion was compared to a locust invasion? They were a human pestilence. They were driving the Israelites to the point of destitution because they would take everything they had, produce-wise, and then tear up the land to make it difficult to grow again. And the Israelites just find that really unfair. And you would too. It seemed unfair in particular because they would do all the work to cultivate the land, to plant and grow these crops, to raise and care for those sheep and oxen and donkeys. And they're doing all this hard labor. They're taking care of everything. They're not being lazy. They're not being selfish. They're not being unethical in how they go about all of this. And then all of a sudden, they're simply doing their work, their job, supporting their family and their community. And all of a sudden, foreigners invade and take everything that they have. And for seven years, they've endured this. For seven years, they've struggled. For seven years, they have been robbed of their peace by forces beyond their control. And some of us know exactly what that feels like. Our lives have experienced peace-robbing invasions by forces beyond our control. For some of us, it was a medical diagnosis. And regardless of how well you took care of your body or how well your loved one took care of their body, a disease invaded over which you had no control. For others of us, it was a divorce. And no matter how hard you worked on that marriage, no matter how much time and energy you put into that relationship, and no matter how many prayers you prayed, your marriage was invaded by another person or an attitude or an addiction or a situation over which you had no control. Some of us were robbed of our peace by a financial crisis. Maybe it was the loss of a job or an economic meltdown or an unexpected extravagant expense. And no matter how hard you worked or how well you handled your finances, you were invaded by a crisis that was beyond your control. And others of us have been robbed of our peace by tragedy. That natural disaster destroyed your property. That automobile accident affected your family. That crime was committed against you, and now you're dealing with the fallout of something over which you had no control. That was the experience of the Israelites. Life was unfair. And sometimes that's the experience we have. Because we live in a fallen world, and this, this unfairness of life is what drove Solomon to declare that all is vanity and a striving after the wind, no less than seven times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon tried everything to figure out what made life work, what made life enjoyable, what gave life peace. He tried everything because with his wisdom and his wealth, nothing was too, too expensive, nothing was too far, nothing was unreachable. 
And he came to the conclusion that everything is vain. Everything is a striving after the wind, except for, as he concludes his book, except for the fear of God, except for a God-centered life. You have no control, ultimately, in this world. And so at some point in time, life is going to be unfair, something's going to invade, and you won't be able to do anything about it. But that's not the only reason peace eludes us, nor was it the only reason peace eluded the Israelites. The other reason peace eluded the Israelites was due to the presence of farness from God. Now, I know this is another occasion where Kyle is making up a word, and I'm okay with that, so you should be okay with that. I even emailed Mingu last night and told him I'm making up a word tomorrow. Here's what it means so you can translate appropriately. I want you to notice again what, what Gideon said when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Because I believe Gideon isn't just speaking for Gideon. I think Gideon is speaking for Israel. It's in Judges chapter 6 and verse 13. When that angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, Gideon said, If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon's saying, God has grown distant. God is too far from us now. He isn't worried about us now. He has forsaken us. And I believe that was the mindset of the people. You have to remember that the Israelites are just a few generations removed from the Exodus. They're just a few generations removed from a 400-year bondage in Egypt during which they had no contact with Yahweh and they were enduring this bondage and felt like God was gone. And now here they are in another semi-bondage situation where they are oppressed by these Midianites and they're fighting for their survival. And once again, just like their forefathers, they're wondering where God is in the midst of all this chaos because they haven't received a response to their cry for help in seven years. So Gideon reveals to us what the people are thinking, and that is that God had forsaken them, but they had it all backward. If you go back to the first verse of Judges chapter 6, read again what it says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. See, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel was not forsaken by Yahweh, it was forsaken by Israel. And this wasn't the first time it happened because all throughout the book of Judges, the same cycle repeats itself. The Israelites would rebel against God through sin. God would then allow them to be oppressed as a form of punishment for their sin. Their oppression would cause them to cry out to God for help. God would then respond to their cries by sending a deliverer who would not only rescue them, but also lead them back to God in repentance. But then after that deliverer was gone... They would go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord again. So the problem 
wasn't God abandoning Israel. The problem was Israel abandoning God. The farness of God was their fault. And for some of us, our lack of peace is not because of the unfairness of life. It's because of the farness of God that we create. Remember Isaiah chapter 59 verse 1 and 2 explains why God seems far. There it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Whose fault is the separation? Not God's. It's ours. Our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions, our disobedience to the Lord is the reason we're separated from him. And it's the exact same case with Israel. So when we disobey God, when we reject his will, when we sin against him, we remove ourselves from his presence. That's the issue. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from the source of peace. Because seven times in the New Testament, Yahweh is identified as the God of peace. And in an additional 15 passages, peace is identified as being from God or of God. Do you know what that means? That means God is the source of peace. And when you're not in the presence of the one who is the source of peace, guess what you won't have? Peace. It's that simple. And maybe that's your peace problem right now. Maybe you don't lack peace because life is unfair. Maybe you lack peace because you're too far removed from God. Wasn't that the case for Abraham when he relocated to Egypt without divine direction? Wasn't that the case for Jonah when he boarded that boat heading in the opposite direction of the maker's mission? And wasn't that the case for the prodigal son when he relocated to a far country away from the father? See, when we take ourselves away from the presence of the Lord, we take ourselves away from the source of peace. James chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Who makes the first move? Technically, God already made the first move, which we'll talk about in a moment. But when we move ourselves away from God, the expectation is we've got to come back to him We've got to move back in his direction, and as soon as we do, guess what he's doing? When God seems distance, it's not because he pulled away. It's because we did. And all we have to do is draw near to him again, because he's just waiting to draw near to us. You see, peace, or the lack thereof, Maybe because of things you can't control, but it may also be because of things you've done. Now I want to talk about what peace is and what peace is not. I think we confuse peace with a lot of other qualities. I think we confuse peace with a truce, with a ceasefire. But that's not really peace. Just because you're not shooting at each other doesn't mean you're at peace. And I think sometimes we equate peace with just being calm. But peace is more than that. You see, one thing peace is not is it is not circumstantial. 
What I mean is it's not based on circumstances, but that's how we think of it. There's an old story, a legend that has floated around in sermons for years about a painting contest. And on a financial award was going to be rewarded to whoever could paint the best portrait of peace. There were two finalists in the contest. The, the, the first painter had painted this beautiful scene of a serene mountain lake, much like what is envisioned in this picture. And the sun was glistening off the surface of that lake at just the right angle so that it sparkled across the top of crystal clear water. There was no breeze, and there are these beautiful trees lining the shores of the lake, and it was just calm and still and quiet. Everything about this painting communicated calmness and serenity. The other finalist painted a very different scene, one that a contemporary artist, after hearing this story, decided to recreate. In his painting, the sky was pitch black and lightning zigzagged through the air in unpredictable movements, as one author said. The focal point of the painting was a turbulent waterfall, forcefully falling off the side of a cliff and crashing mightily on the rocks below. And below that waterfall, situated underneath a protective outcropping, there is a little dove calmly sitting on a nest, unconcerned about the chaos all around. And that was the painting that the judges chose. They chose it as the winner because in that painting, the artist showed the truest manifestation of peace. A well-being that resonates from within despite what's going on all around. See, the point is that being at peace doesn't mean being calm when everything else is calm. You're supposed to be calm when everything around you is calm. Being at peace means you're calm even in the midst of chaos. I find it very interesting that it is at this moment that Gideon chose to build an altar and call it the Lord is peace. Because the conflict hasn't even come yet for Gideon. It's after he builds this altar that he then has to go to his hometown and tear down the, the altar to Baal that, that his, his father had built, apparently. It's after he builds this altar to the Lord, who is peace, that he has to go recruit an army, whittle it down to 300, and then go to battle with just torches and trumpets. And it's after he's built this altar to Yahweh Shalom that he's going to have to dissuade the people from appointing him king. All of his conflicts are still to come. But he could be at peace, even with chaos on the horizon, because his peace was not circumstantial. You know, the Hebrew word shalom means wholeness, completeness, or well-being. As one author pointed out, it means having things properly aligned in order. So, so it's more than just feeling good at a particular moment. It's more than happiness. True peace is a state of being not a state of circumstances. And that's why Paul could offer this prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. 
it is not circumstantial. It's not tied to events or what's going on. It is far above that. And that's why in Philippians chapter 4, in one of the most popular passages about peace, Paul could offer these instructions. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now notice in this passage, it's rejoice always. That's not circumstantial. It's pray about everything. That's not circumstantial. I think the point Paul is making is that when your circumstances don't dictate your relationship with God, peace will always be present. And I know there are some that would love for me to expound on the peace that passes understanding, that would love for me to explore what that means, that would love for me to explain what that is. But I can't do that. Because right there, Paul said, it surpasses all understanding. All I can tell you is that I've experienced it. And some of you have too. You can't explain this kind of peace. All you can do is experience it when the Lord blesses you with it. But you need to understand that there's only one way to experience that kind of peace. Because peace is conditional. True peace is based not on the experience of the absence of conflict, but on the availability of the presence of Yahweh Shalom. You see, Gideon was able to be at peace before all the conflicts because he was able to be in the presence of God. Look again at Judges chapter 6, and I want you to notice what, the, what unfolds between verse 15 through 24. In verse 15, Gideon expresses his concern that he wasn't qualified for this assignment. So Yahweh responded in verse 16 by saying, I will be with you. But apparently Gideon needed some reassurance about this call and this promise. And so he asked the angel of the Lord to stay put while he went home, prepared a food offering for Yahweh, and his request was granted. And when he returned, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the food, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed it. And it's then, it was then, that Gideon perceived, this is verse 21, Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas! O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, for you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. It was only when Gideon realized he was in the presence of Yahweh Shalom that he found peace. He found peace in the presence of Yahweh because although he deserved to die, since Yahweh had said no man shall see my face and live, in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 20. Despite Yahweh having declared that, Gideon found peace because Yahweh showed mercy. Because Yahweh granted him peace in a moment that Gideon expected to be full of conflict. And the same is true for us. True peace can only be found in the presence of Yahweh Shalom. Remember, our sins made a separation between us and him. So we needed a mediator to broker peace between us and Yahweh Shalom if we ever wanted to be in his presence. 
It says, one preacher said, you must have peace with God to have the peace of God. And so the Lord of peace sent the Prince of Peace to provide a perpetual means for us to remain in his presence. And that's why Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Like Gideon, we no longer have to fear standing before Yahweh on the day of judgment because the enmity that our sins created between us and Yahweh has been remedied at Calvary. And the point is that if you want to experience the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, then it starts by being in Christ. Jesus himself declared, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Because Christ is the one who is our peacemaker. He brokered peace between us and God so that we don't have to fear that day of judgment. So that we don't have to worry about standing in the presence of Yahweh one day. So that we can eternally be in that presence. But it's only through Christ that the peace that passes understanding can be possessed. It's interesting. When hurricanes form, we see all the chaos on the surface of the water, the, the mighty winds and the churning waves. And I've heard it claimed that if you were to just go a few feet under the surface of the water, everything would be calm. But that's not exactly true. One scientist explained that the water below each wave moves in a circular motion, which sets off another small circular motion below it. And so it's like a bunch of hula hoops stacked on top of each other with orbital motions happening below those waves, descending into the, the ocean. And those subsurface disturbances descend approximately half the distance in length from one wave peak to the next. I know I'm getting all scientific, but I spent a lot of time looking into this. Basically what that means is that there's disturbance in the water at a depth of half the distance between waves. So if you've got 100 yards between one wave peak and the other wave peak, the disturbance is going about 50 yards deep. But you know what that also means? That also means when there is a hurricane out there, that in the depths of the ocean, there is a place you can go low enough that you're not impacted by the storm, that you don't feel the waves and the water churning. And here's the point. As one preacher said, where there is depth, there is peace. When our relationship with Yahweh Shalom lacks depth, we constantly get beaten by the storms of life. But when we know Yahweh Shalom and our relationship with him is deep and abiding, then we'll experience the peace that passes understanding. question for you this morning is, do you have peace? Maybe you lack peace because of the circumstances of life. We can't ignore that reality. 
And if that's the case for you today, then maybe you need to do what those disciples did on that boat when it was being tossed around by that storm. Maybe you need to take it to the one who can look at the storm in your life and say, peace be still. But maybe you don't have peace today because of your sin. And it's time to let the Prince of Peace go to work. It's time to let what he did at the cross and dying for you take care of your sin so that you can be at peace. This morning, our invitation is simple. There's only one in whom you can find true peace. Won't you choose him today while together we stand and sing?